Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. I'm going to be using this Q&A to take advantage of some of my other fellow awesome nerds who listen and do another mic test, which I know drives some of you crazy. So I'll save the explanation until afterwards. But if you hear my voice change as this goes on, that's what's happening. And then I'll explain it at the end. So if you had the patience to sit through this whole Q&A, stick to the end and kind of hear the whole layout of the differences between each. But anyway, let's jump in and check out the questions for this week. First up, over on Floatplane, Amon said they just bought a PVM 9L3 and wanted to know if Martin's uh, homebrew version of the BKM129X input card supports composite video through the SCART input. No, that is just simply RGBS, or if you have the version with multiple inputs, you could also do RGBHV with the sync combiner, or you could put uh, use just a pin adapter to go direct in with component video. But no, that I will not accept composite video. You would need a completely different input card for that. Now, as far as I know, those aren't too expensive, but if you have a 9L3, does that, I have never used one of those. Does it have some built-in inputs like a lot of the other 9-inch or 8-inch PVMs, like the one I have sitting right there? Or is it like the BVMs where they're slots only? If it's only slots, you'll have to buy the same input card that is uh, that is on the BVMs, which I'll get you the model number. I have one sitting right over there. Uh, I'll leave that in the description for anybody that's interested. But no, that is just going to take RGB component and VGA via a sync combiner circuit. It will not accept composite video. So yeah, I think that would be cool, but there's just a lot of circuitry that goes in, into doing that. So I think that's probably a good move that Martin got the card out and then just got it working as is. But if that's a huge thing that people need, maybe we could figure out how to do it. But I really think that's something that's best done with an official Sony input card. Now over on Patreon, Charles Madeer wants to know if we could have a list of devices that are compatible with the SNES digital audio mod. I don't see why that wouldn't be a perfect fit for the wiki, so go for it. But one thing to note is you're gonna want the exact model number. And if there's a date code or something, use that as well, because I have definitely heard people say, oh, I got a dead end receiver in 2015 that works and i found somebody else with a 2015 denon receiver no idea if it's the right model or the same model and one worked and one didn't so you're going to want detailed info on each and it could also be beneficial if we popped open these devices and figured out what chips they use because men maybe it's down to oh well any chip that uses an x brand decoder on there would be able to read it uh, so yeah i think that would be good info um some background on this mod though and some uh, you know just some knowledge on it overall first of all it's really hard to do signal comparisons for snes audio because each console is slightly different and this has to do with what i talk about all the time with analog components and analog consoles and that all of these components on the motherboard resistors capacitors whatever they all have a tolerance and back then they were probably, for resistors, they were probably 5% tolerance. So that means if it was 100 ohm, it could be 95 or 105, or probably a little less than that, but whatever. Uh, and with capacitors, it was probably 20% or more. So it's very common. And in fact, every SNES we've tested is slightly different than the next. So it's really hard to do things like MD Fourier analysis. So we haven't dug deep into it, but there are a few things to note. First, digital mods remove all analog noise floor. There should be completely crystal clear. So that alone is a good reason for some people to use it. Depending on your cables and your equipment, this could actually be a pretty big deal. Now, 
every time I say this, there's always a couple of audio nerds in the comments that want to argue, well, if you have the fully shielded cables you always talk about, noise isn't a problem. Eh, not true. You're always going to have some kind of ground hum, analog noise, something with analog audio. Very often it ends up being pleasing to the mix. That's why a lot of people end up liking the sound of records. But it's really up to you to decide. And if you're doing something like video capture, mixing it in with voiceovers, there's lots of reasons to go digital. But the problem is you can't use Super Game Boy or MSU One audio hacks with the digital audio mod because both of those devices generate their own audio. So that's kind of another thing is that you might not want to go directly from the SNES with this, depending on your use case and your needs. So if the goal was to get as accurate of a solution as possible while playing on a CRT, but also capturing the Mister would probably be really great for that, to be honest. You can get full digital on everything through the HDMI output. You can get game on a CRT and do it that way. Uh, but if you're looking for all original consoles, then yeah, the digital audio mod's great. Just shielded cables might be good too. That's just kind of all up to you. Um, but for me personally, it just it's it's really a matter of preference. And when I first discovered the digital audio mod, I was running it through equipment that really, in a bad way, amplified all analog noise. So I thought it was a massive upgrade going to the digital audio mod. But now that I've got much, much better equipment than I used to have, like night and day better from the time I started retro RGB till now, I just totally like your standard analog, well-shielded analog audio output. So it was a really long way of saying there are some differences, there are some limitations, but it's really up to you whether you feel like it's it's something that you would really benefit from. So let me know if you have any other questions or anything like that. Uh, FBX had some comparisons posted, but I believe he took them down because they couldn't be used with MD Fourier. I still thought they were cool to listen to, to be honest, but um, yeah, I don't know. Just let me know if you want any more details, but that's kind of a, a fun rabbit hole to go down, but you might not need to. Green Devil wants to know if I have a recommendation for a portable display panel or monitor. Family vacations are planned for the summer, and they were thinking of packing their mistress setup, and possibly their N64 digital for the whole family to enjoy without hogging the one TV that their rental house will probably have. What's better than beers and windjammers outside, right? Uh, they've seen a panel that's uh, 60 frame per second and has a resolution of 2520 by 1680 price is right should i pick that up or is there a better better alternative um i don't know if i've ever seen that one but there is one i tweeted about a while back because i saw it was up for sale and this is the one that john lineman uses a lot of devs use and you know it's for the money you know that annoying phrase i always use when talking about audio equipment for the money i think it's awesome now, of course, if you put this next to, you know, like a, a gorgeous OLED that runs at 120, uh, 120 hertz with BFI, no, it's going to look terrible. But if you put it next to like your average hotel TV, it'll probably look really good and definitely have lower latency. And at the very least, you can get in and change the settings where I've seen some hotel TVs lock out their menus so you can't even get in there to do any of that. So, yeah, um, I'll leave a link in the description to the one that other people have recommended. And if anybody else has any suggestions, please let us know. Just please put the model number, YouTube blocks links in the comments, which I actually think is a good thing. It's it's more good than bad. But so just put the model number in and we'll take a look. But hopefully the one that um, that I found is still on sale and hopefully that'll fit your needs. 
Next up, 8% Android has a conundrum. They're currently using a Sony PVM 20L5 and 14L5 multi-format monitor, which they love, but they've run out of space for them. And they're considering selling because they'd rather get them in the hands of somebody that would use it rather than have it sit in the attic somewhere, but they don't know the best place to sell them or what a good price is. And my advice for that is to look to communities like this one. I would jump on the retro RGB discord, or I would really consider joining retro Tech's, um, Patreon account as well, which yes, I am shilling for my friend Steve here, but at the same time, that's also another like-minded group of people who are focused on CRTs and they'd be able to help you out with prices and finding people in the UK that might want them. Uh, it's really hard to deal with buying and selling monitors. There are so many scammers out there. I have gotten ridiculously lucky in the past couple of years buying monitors, just really good people. Um, some people recognized me as Bob from Retro RGB. Others didn't. I just got really lucky, but I hear more horror stories than not. So I would just try to find groups of like-minded people, discuss it with them and go from there and also be reasonable, right? You know, if I'm going to make, I'm going to make numbers up here, right? If somebody says the 2005 is worth a hundred thousand dollars, but then they want you to box it up to ship it or drive it to them or whatever else, that's totally different. Whereas if somebody's like, Hey, you know, I know this monitor's worth a hundred grand, but I'll give you 80 grand for it. If I just, but I'll drive up, you don't even need to lift it. My friend and I, I'll carry it down. You don't have to do any work. We'll bring cash. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are involved in that, that certainly make a big difference. And, you know, uh, some people disagree with me. A penny is a penny period, but I just, after buying and selling so many large and heavy items of my life. I just take a lot of um, consideration into the whole situation. So I would think about that as well. Also, I'm clearly being ridiculous with these prices. There are no monitors that sell for $100,000. I just felt like being silly. Jay Clax has a question that I'm going to need your help answering, but let's jump into it first. They have two Wii's that they plan on installing a Wii HDMI kit and at least one of them, and they're going to be using dual output, analog and digital. They already have a launch Wii, but bought an RVL CPU-40, reading that the video quality would be better, and that it uses less power or generates less heat. However, they recently caught the Twitter thread from Wobbling Pixels, saying that the 480p fix only works with the earlier board revisions, not the Dash 40 or 60 ones. So now they're wondering which one they should install the HDMI mod into. Um, they know the HDMI mod's quality is not affected by that, but they'd like to do the mod to the launch Wii, assuming that it'll actually end up having better component video. What do I recommend? Do I imagine that a 480p fix will be found for the later revisions eventually? So some of the later revisions had better quality video. So I think there's a couple of factors involved in this. There is a 480p fix, and I think Extrems found that a couple of years ago, and then it was implemented into USB loader, so that way you could just boot a game with it. But there... There has been there have been some other updates. Uh, I think installing the HDMI kit bypasses some of the circuitry that adds some of this weird uh, output look to it. So I don't know. Maybe maybe my old age is finally getting to me. But for some reason, I'm just not remembering the right answer to this, which makes me sad because I did so much work on the Wii for the first couple of years of retro RGB, all the way up to actually all the way up to the release of the Wii Dual. So. I would love for anybody in the comments to to bring me back up to speed on this and to point Jay Clax in the right direction. Most importantly, can we answer Jay Clax's question? 
Uh, do you put an HDMI mod in the launch Wii or the RVL CPU 40 to get the best quality video out of both analog and digital? But also, you know, is there a page, a video? Did somebody did somebody already add all this to console mods wiki and I just forgot to look? I don't know. But I'd love to get this solid info on the wiki so that we don't have questions like this anymore. And I am scrambling to find time to update retro RGB and all these pages uh, just because it's just it's so time consuming. It's without exaggerating. It's probably a month straight worth of like full-time work to get their website back up and running, which is why I haven't done it. So my apologies. That's a stupid excuse. I know, but I just, at least I'd rather explain it and have you annoyed that it's a stupid excuse. But anyway, if somebody could jump in and help, that would be awesome. Marcello Medini is looking for a suggestion for an HDMI matrix switch that needs at least four out and probably 16 in. They would like to have all of their HDMI consoles hooked up at once, but they'd also like the ability to scale down to 240p on their retro tank for their CRT setup as well. So that's a good question. I don't know of one that's going to be reliable with all of the stuff that we do. Although if you're using your tank 5X in uh Actually, I think even with the modern firmwares, it's pretty much going to be compatible with everything. But I'm just saying I don't have any personal experience and I don't like giving recommendations unless I really know for a fact what a solid answer is. The other thing, too, is that HDMI matrix switches are very expensive, at least most of the ones that I've seen with more than two outputs. So what you may want to do is just get a basic HDMI switch that is cheap, that has 16 in, one out, and then get an HDMI distribution amp that's maybe one in, four out, or something like that. There is one of those that I've heard works well, although I haven't personally tested it. So I'll leave a link to that. But please, please keep in mind, I don't know. I don't. I can't vouch for it. So you might want to buy it directly from the Amazon link, just knowing that you could return it. Uh, yeah, it's an affiliate link because I'm not an idiot. But honestly, the reason is for returns. So, or I guess if you find a cheaper one on eBay, as long as the seller accepts returns, that would might be a better option as well. But I'll leave a link to the one to four splitter, and maybe that's something that you could work with. I'm not 100% sure, but at least it's at least it's better than saying I got nothing for you. <laughs> Next are a couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, they want to start modding Super Famicom games with English patches with their original games using Voltar's non-destructive modules. However, they can't seem to get in touch with them for some questions before they buy. How can you get in touch with them? You really can't. I've been friends with Zach for a long time. I have his damn phone number. Sometimes I can't get old. <laughs> so, you know, I buy the modules and maybe reply to the email that you get uh, with a question there and hope that he responds. But, you know, I kind of have mixed feelings, right? Because with all respect to you, Jason, like he's trying to run a business and mod stuff and ship things out. So I, I think he just ends up ignoring most of the emails that he gets, which I don't really have a problem with. But at the same time, I'm wondering how many more sales he would get if he responded to emails and said, you know, yeah, you need seven of these, four of these, here's the links, goodbye type of thing. So good luck. You know, I, I mean, I don't mean anything rude to anybody in this one. I'm not digging on uh, on Zach, even though I enjoy making fun of him. I'm not digging on you. It's just, it is what it is. It's one of those things where, you know, try to get a hold of him, but I, no guarantees there. Funny enough, uh, Jason's also looking to get a hold of somebody else, Louis Zezeron, so they could potentially import something from Eastern Europe so that they could get a, 
a video DAC for some cool testing. Um, I think Lewis is right on the Discord server, but if not, just let me know. I'll put you in touch. Um, Lewis does nothing with his time. He's not important. So no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I actually think Lewis loves this stuff. So if you wouldn't mind, um, if you're going to buy it and just have him ship it to you, then I think he would like to take a look at it as well. Maybe do a video on it and send it to you. Now, I... I shouldn't speak for Lewis, but you know, I know him. He's a nerd like me. He likes messing with this stuff. So at the very least, you should be able to get an, a yes or no answer from him. Unlike, unlike Voltar. Sorry. <laughs> um, next, since they've been ordering a lot of stuff on Amazon recently, a thought just occurred. Could they, could anyone utilize Amazon affiliate links for basically anything? Like if I recommended some good Oreo cookies, could you use affiliate links for that? Thank you for asking that question. That is really nice of you. Jason actually did ask that. This isn't some cheesy ad that I'm sneaking in, although I probably would do something like that. But uh, that is a genuine question. And yes, all you have to do is go to retrorgb.com and then you click on the support us button at the very top of the page. And if you scroll down, it says affiliate links and the one labeled Amazon General. If you click on that, that gets you a tag at the end that you could copy and paste next to whatever item you have. Technically speaking, if you click on that, you shouldn't have to do anything else, but I, I don't really know. Uh, you know, who knows if that actually works or not, but yeah. And I've had a few people ever since I started talking about that, tell me that, you know, Hey, I just bought a new PC. So I used your affiliate link for, you know, a grand worth of parts. And that just, it means so much to me because first and foremost, you don't pay a penny more. So it's not like you're getting ripped off, but it's such a huge help. And the fact that you all would even think to ask or do something like that means so much to me. I really do appreciate it more than, more than words could tell as I'm flapping my gums of this podcast. So thank you. But yeah, anything from eBay and anything from Amazon, you should be able to just paste the code next to. Um, and you know, a box of Oreos, that's cool. I appreciate that. But any big purchases, if you don't, you know, if you don't have your own codes or anything like that, then please consider doing it because you really don't spend, there's no strings attached. You don't spend one penny more. There's no different rules for returns or anything. It just, you know, it supports the channel and we get a small cut. So thank you for asking that. Last question. Any tips for cleaning the actual tube part of a CRT? They have the chassis and shielding all cleaned along with the wiring harness and boards, but the tube itself is still dirty as hell. They think Steve recommends just a horsehair or otherwise anti-ESD paintbrush and gingerly sweeping around the neck and tube. Completely agree. There is a, a but at the end of this. However, in the in the situation you're talking about, yeah, that that should be fine. You don't need to make this perfectly clean. This isn't like um, when you're cleaning off a heat sink and if you leave it caked in dust, it'll actually be hotter. This is just more of one of those things where if you get it clean, it's not going to get it's not going to have any dust fall off onto your components. It's not going to make things harder to work on. But yes, that's that's what I would do. The only exception are when you have things that are so gross or you're trying to work on them and there's just so much sticky muck on it that you can't even work on it. And that's the time where you would want, uh, I think it's electronics cleaner. It's basically non-conductive fluid in an aerosol can. And I've seen people post videos where they basically take the back off of a CRT and they just soak it in this stuff. Um, and they, you know, they cover the neck, of course, first they soak it in this stuff and then they hit it with compressed air and they leave it in, 
it, you know, sort of in the sun to dry. Because remember, it's UV rays. It's not, you don't want your the sun baking down on it. But that is only for the scenario of it's so gross that it just, you don't even want to go near it. And you, what if, and smells too. Like if it was in an arcade and it just reeks of cigarettes and stuff, that's the time to do it. And I've seen people use a garden hose for that. And that's one of those things where if you cover all of the stuff on it properly, it's, you know, there's nothing conductive on the outside of a tube, but it's just the only time I would ever be okay doing that is in the scenario of it's disgusting. You can't even work on it. And somebody was about to throw it out anyway. And you, for whatever reason, the electronics fluid cleaner just won't, won't take anything off. Fine. Use a hose, but then after you're done, blow it out with compressed air and then maybe use electronics cleaner after that, just to kind of get any little bits of water moisture for all of the, the reasons that I normally talk about. As long as you cover up anything so that the water gets onto any conductive surface, that would work. But Whenever you see, I, I wanted to bring this up because whenever you see videos of people hosing down CRTs, most people in the comments are smart enough to lose their minds and go, what the hell are you doing? You know, that's stupid. You shouldn't do that. But there actually are scenarios in which it's not a bad thing to do. And scenarios are basically if you have no other choice. But to back it up a little bit, if it's kind of gross, electronics cleaner fluid should work fine and it's a lot safer to use. But if it's just dirty, right, if you just touch it and you get, you know, some some black dust on your hand and stuff like that, then the method that you were talking about, a non-conductive brush, you know, horsehair paintbrush, whatever, that should be totally fine. And that's kind of what I would do as well. So anybody have any thoughts on any of those things, please let me know in the comments and uh, let me know if you can't get a hold of Lewis. I'll put you in touch with him. He's a he's a good guy. We like teasing each other, but we've got nothing but good things to say about Lewis. Quantum Guitar has some questions, and I have mostly cop-out answers. Sorry, I'm, I guess I'm not doing too well this week. But first of all, they want to know if I have any thoughts on using an M2 slot to use an adapter that connects an older PCI Express graphics card. So you'd be going graphics card to PCIe to M2 adapter for the purpose of using an old GPU that has S-Video or composite output. And I have no clue. I'm almost positive that that would work fine with Thunderbolt, but I have no idea if that would work at all with an M2 slot. It certainly would not with an M2 SATA, but with an NVMe M2 slot, I don't know, maybe. I I would definitely just check and see. Um, You know, maybe somebody out there has done that before. Maybe there's a video on YouTube of somebody doing it, but I I just have no input on that one. Also, they want to know, since interlaced video draws every other frame, would a 60 frame per second game being displayed in 480i or I guess 1080i actually only be 30 frames per second? And I don't think so. I think you would see a difference, but I'm not really the best person to describe this. I am not an expert on interlaced video. Uh, and in fact, every time I've dug, dug deep into deinterlacing options, you know, for everything uh, ranging from deinterlacing your old VHS tapes to video games to whatever else, it really, it just starts to make my head hurt. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to lie. So I would ask people that are 480i experts for really the best description for that. And, uh, you know, 
I, I, I have a feeling you would notice a difference between 30 FPS and 60 FPS on 480i. I just don't know the best way to, to describe it. So if anybody out there has any any suggestions, let me know. I think I do have an answer to your third question, though. Um, they were looking into calibrating RGB monitors, and uh, they were looking to get hardware to calibrate white point. So do I have any advice as to what equipment they would need beyond the 240p test suite? Yes, Dan Mons did a whole video series on this, including the equipment you might use. So I'm going to link to that. Um, They're not short videos, but this is not a short process, as I'm sure you already know. Uh, So if you really were serious about it, that's exactly what I would do, uh, where I would start. So, hey, I guess I'm one for three today, but at least I was able to give you the answer to that one. A couple of questions from Elmer. First, they're shopping around for a new TV and they're looking for a 4K OLED. And they heard that some of the newer ones don't behave properly with a lot of retro content, especially things that are in 4x3 or 480p. And they wanted to know what current ones to check out. I have been looking at two that I would love to have. And in fact, I am very seriously considering selling one of my incredibly rare RGB monitor BVMs to try and get one of these two, the Samsung, I believe, because they have a couple of features and it's got some potential to behave very cool with retro as well as movies and and modern stuff, of course. But I haven't seen retro-focused reviews. Now, I will point you to HDTV Test, Vincent, Vincent's channel on YouTube. Vincent is freaking awesome and he's been kind enough to answer any questions I've had on Twitter as well. So uh, check out Vincent's channel, keep an eye on it. And of course, you know, Digital Foundry, John Linneman, My Life in Gaming, they're all good sources for this, but I would love either the new LG C3 or the new Samsung one for a whole bunch of reasons that I don't want to go into yet because I haven't tested them yet and I don't know anybody that's tested them. So maybe my hopes are all just useless and it's not going to work the way I want it to, but I'm going to put a link to both of those in. And I'll also put a link to a cheaper TV that I thought had the potential. I haven't tested it yet to be one of the best cheaper TVs in there. It is one thing I will say is that with some exceptions, it's my strong opinion that most people, there's always a fringe use case, but most people would benefit from either buying the cheapest possible TV that doesn't suck or saving up and getting one that's really, really good and just skip all the stuff in the middle. Once again, not everybody, not every situation, but I've seen so many people drop 400 bucks on a TV and it's perfect for them. And yeah, of course, the $4,000 OLED would be better, but not so much for what they're trying to do. And in most situations, jumping to that eight, nine, you know, $1,200 TV, was not a big jump. And you know, a lot of people disagree. That's totally fine. There's a lot of fringe use cases. But yeah, I would go one or the other. And there is a cheaper TV, not cheap, but cheaper, that I also think might be pretty cool if you're a modern gamer as well and you want a big screen to play on. So I'll leave the links to all three of those just in case you might be interested in any of them. Uh, next up, Elmer wants me to explain a bit further on about Voltar's opinion on digital mod kits. Well, lucky for you, Elmer, I speak Voltar, so I could translate to tell you what the heck he was actually talking about. Basically, Voltar was saying, what about Super Nintendo, Genesis, you know, NES, all of those consoles that are 15 kilohertz only, so either 240p or in some rare cases, 480i, 
why not work on a digital mod for those that only outputs the original signal and nothing else? Or maybe it just line doubles to 480p so you could still plug it into a modern monitor if you wanted to, but or maybe even go to 720, but really it's the purpose of it is to get a true digital output from the console. Now yes, I know there's Genesis and SNES, there's some some discussion on that, but at least for the NES this is possible. And I completely agree with him on it for all of the reasons that I talked about in my, the Wii section last week and or this week's podcast, whatever. And that's right now, if you were to say, let's say get an, a Nintendo HDMI kit, an original NES or Famicom or whatever, that only outputted either the original signal or 480p. Sure. Yes. You could plug it into your monitor and play it in 480p, but now you could also put it through in, analog to digital converter and you could get very clean quality component video out of it or you could do that and put it through a RetroTINK 5x and scale that and when the RetroTINK 4k comes out you could use the hdmi directly in the hdmi input or what if you have one of the very few displays on the planet that would accept a 240p signal over hdmi and do not a bad job sharp scaling it up by just simply worrying about getting the original signal the console outputs and not dealing with scaling at all, or maybe just basic line doubling, then what you end up with is a pure digital to digital signal that could be manipulated any way that you would like without any analog interference. So the, the point Voltar was trying to make is any kit and you know I'm not I'm not throwing shade at Kevin. I like Kevin, but the NES RGB I don't think outputs. I don't think Kevin ever updated it to output 240p. I think the lowest it'll go is 480p. So if you have that kit, or if there's another kit that comes out, let, let's just say another kit comes out for the NES that's 1440p and it's absolutely gorgeous and it's got these amazing scanline options, but it only outputs 1440p. What are you going to do 10, 15 years from now when 8K scalers come out and all of those features that are amazing today are kind of pointless because you want the new scaling technology and the new filters and you could plug yourself into the matrix and use it to play on a, I don't know, whatever else. Point being is if you just simply digitize the signal and leave it in the original resolution, you could potentially save quite a bit of cost on those kits because you don't have to build scaling technology into them. And it's future proof because whether you just plug it direct into a TV in 480p and deal with the softer signal or whether you plug that into a scaler, it'll always just be the digital to digital signal. So you're right. Um, the DC digital, you know, most of the, most of the games are native 480p, and it could totally just do that. And but the PS1 digital, I don't remember if that one does 240p output. I really hope. I, I think the Pixel FX team would are going to be adding that, or we're considering adding it. And same thing with the N64 digital. Uh, so. But those are, at the moment, I think the lowest you can go is 480p, which is still low enough, I guess, that, you know, it, it would be fine. You could apply some filters to that. But if you have the original signal that's digitized, you could manipulate it any way that you want, and you're not paying for any extra feature. So I guess flipping it around and saying it differently, let's say the only analog video console that you own is the Nintendo 64 just get it, get the N64 digital, use it. It's going to be awesome. It's great. But what if you own a ton of retro consoles? 
Are you going to try to get really expensive HDMI mods for all of them? Or if you're going to be getting the RetroTINK 4K with an HDMI input, wouldn't you rather save a lot of money and just get the basic digital output for each of them, but still have all of the benefits of a clean digital signal through the RetroTINK 4K? Now, that's a lot of speculation. That's a lot of opinion. You could form your own opinion, of course, on that one. But I just wanted to clarify what Voltar said, because I really, I honestly totally agree with him on this one. And I'm not saying any of the kits that are out now are bad. I'm just saying I would really love to see a direct mode. And I'd also love to see more kits that were cheaper that just digitize the signal with nothing else. In that same video, I also disagreed with Voltar's opinion of post video of your mod work, not pictures, uh, because taking video is really hard. I, as you all have seen on my live streams, I am not the best person with a soldering iron, but you've also seen times where I'm trying to angle the camera to get it in the shot to show you what I'm working on. And you've also, you know, you've seen how that comes out, like with the um, Pico boot. When I tried to do everything on camera, it came out fine. And then one of the wires kind of wasn't, I think it came loose or something. So I just grabbed it off camera and I held it in the same, you know, the way I normally would, where you can't really see anything as my hands are covering it, put it back in front of the camera and it was perfect. So, whereas when you're, you know, if you're taking pictures before, during and after, you could do the work, pause and snap the picture. But once again, I mean, these are opinions and I love disagreeing with my friends. If we all agreed on the exact same things, how freaking boring would life be? So, you know, I'll, um, I'll get in the ring and battle Voltar for that one. But I do completely agree with his opinion on we need more cheap, true digital mods that are kind of future proof because you don't have to worry about missing any features. Uh, and also very glad to help um, add some input on your last week's question. I will let you know as soon as the non-one-chip SNES mods are available. Okay, my fellow nerds, now it's time to talk about the microphones. If you don't care, just drop off. There's nothing after this. I don't want to waste anybody's time. But if you're a nerd like me, you might want to stick around for this because maybe it'll be a fun experiment. Uh, first, I tried to keep things as apples to apples as possible. Since the first mic was essentially a boom mic that's always just out of camera below me, I know you're supposed to have it above you, but the way my room's set up, I can't quite do it that way, at least yet. Um, so I had the next two mics also below me, and one or two of those, or maybe both, would really have benefited from being right in front of my face, but that's obviously going to sound better. So I wanted to keep it as apples to apples as possible so that, you know, it's slightly askew. I could move it off camera if I ended up keeping or using one of the other ones more. But what about the quality? What about the background noise? What about, do I sound natural? That's kind of the things that I'm interested in. Also, I am going to be processing all of this audio separately. So all of the sections with each mic will all be processed the same, but separate, so they won't affect each other. I showed that in my workflow video a while back, uh, which I guess I'll, I'll leave a link to that too, because why not? But basically I use Isotope RX to do, I'm going to do automatic um, noise reduction, not the learn feature in this one, because I think that'll kind of be pretty good. And then I normalize all of them, and then I put them through the broadcast compressor in Adobe Audition. Yes, I know a lot of people have taken the time to write important tips that I should have been taking, but I just, when I dig into a project like that, I uh, like changing my workflow, I really got to throw my entire brain into it. And I just haven't had a full day to dedicate to testing yet. So I'm still doing it that way, even though shout out to Duke who wrote me like a novel on how I could improve as well as a few other people. I really just want to wait till I have a day to myself with no interruptions. So I'm still doing it that way for now. 
and then that's it. And everything get, gets exported. And the only thing I will do manually is make sure that all three are as close to the same volume as possible. So that's it. At this point, all you would, hopefully I did it close enough so you would just tell me which mic you like better. And next week, I'll tell you which mic was which, with the exception of the first one. You already know the first one's the DDS mic, which I'll, uh, I'll leave a link to my Amazon shop that uh, where I, I put all of the stuff that I use in it. So let me know what you think. I'm super curious. Um, also, as always, thank you to everybody who participates in these. I always have a very good time doing them. And if you support and you would like to ask a question, please just put the question wherever it is that you support in the newest Q&A post, because the way the services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I like just scrolling through in real time and doing this kind of as if we were hanging out talking to each other. So thank you so much for everything, and I will see you next week.